Well, it was possibly one of the lowest points of my 39 years on this earth, if not the lowest. My wife and I had just found out that we had lost our fourth pregnancy, a daughter that we later named Sophia. I was so sad and so angry in the midst of that. Any of you that have suffered miscarriage or loss, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The emotions within created kind of a cacophony of noise that resulted in me falling to the ground and quite honestly cursing God. Not one of my finer moments. I can never truly say like Job that I did not curse God with my mouth. In that moment, I cried out to God in an amazing way, but I did it out of anger. I did it in a way that showed something else was in my heart. I cried out to God and I asked, how could he let this be happening? The words that came out of my mouth in that moment went something like this. God, I have served you faithfully for the last five years. I'd been a Christian intensely for about five years. I've served you faithfully for the last five years. Why is this happening? Deep within, a theology started to come out of my mouth uh, that I didn't even realize was running me. It was my operating system. That theology went something like this. Life will go as I desire it to because I obey God and serve him. But guys, that theology, as I'm sure it may have for you, it failed me on that day. And it's failed me many times since when I find that it's at the core of my heart. The question is, what happens when life does not turn out the way you thought it would? I run into this more and more in my stage of life and with a young church. As people go through stages of life, they start to ask the question, what happens when life does not turn out the way you thought it would? What happens when you've spent your whole life aiming for door number one, and you suddenly realize you're crawling out of window number five, right? I had dreamt of being a father for much of my life, and yet here we were with an unfulfilled dream at that point in time. And I was cursing God because he was not playing by the rules I thought he had laid out. What were those rules? Well, that if I served him, God would reward me with the life I thought was blessed. Those that easily admit that they follow this theology are branded as prosperity gospel followers. But the force of this false theology runs as a thread through much of evangelicalism, and it's not just in prosperity. If I obey, life will turn out the way I am hoping for. Hashtag blessed. Right? Too blessed to be stressed. Better than I deserve. You know what I'm talking about. You can see this in the Christian subculture all the time. This last week, an article was published about a church that survived the wildfires in California when the rest of the town around them burnt down. And I'm going to read you part of that article, and I want you to listen for the underlying theology in this article. Here's a portion from that news article. With nowhere to turn, the group sprinted back inside the church building, huddled together and prayed. With the roaring sound of flames ripping through buildings and the deafening blast of propane canisters detonating at a neighboring hardware store, the group cried out to God for protection, and quite simply, he answered. Despite the fury of the wildfire, the church building remained unscathed. Now, let me be clear. I am so thankful that they were unscathed and survived. I'm so thankful for what occurred. And it definitely could be the result of divine intervention. It definitely could be God's hand, absolutely. And the comments I'm about to make are not meant to remove that or stop that rejoicing whatsoever. 
But guys, if you listen for what I was listening for, there's an underlying problem with this theology. It's a theology that says maybe even unknowingly, we prayed and did what we were supposed to do, and so God answered and saved us. Isn't God good because he did what we asked? You catch that? I guarantee that is not the intent of that article or of any of the comments. I guarantee it was written by good-hearted Christians who wanted to have rejoicing in the midst. And so I don't mean to sound critical. But here's my question. The Christian brother or sister down the street from the church who was similarly praying on their knees for their house and family to be saved while they watched it burn down, are they therefore disobedient? Are their prayers any less deserving? Did God not answer them? And it is the result of their prayer that God is not good because the fire overtook their homes while this church was spared. You see, when we try and make things too formulaic and simplistic, we turn into Job's friends who were just simply annoying. You know what I'm talking about? We run the risk of mischaracterizing God and potentially speaking something we don't intend to those around us, especially when we use the formula that good behavior is always rewarded with blessing and bad behavior is always punished with cursing. We're going to see this actually and wrestle with this big time in Deuteronomy, especially when we get to the section on blessings and cursings. When we do this wrong theology, what we're wrongly stating to the world around us is that relationship with God and obedience towards God is a means to an end rather than the end in and of itself. Let me say that again. In using this theology, we wrongly state that relationship with God and obedience toward God is a means to an end rather than an end in and of itself. Now, if there was ever a case study in someone who was obedient and faithful, one who was truly a friend of God and yet did not see life come to the final fulfillment he had always envisioned, it's the man standing before us here in Deuteronomy 3 that Rachel just read, Moses. Moses did not see life end the way he thought it would. At the end of our text from this morning, Moses will ask in prayer that God let him into the promised land. And as we will see, all the signs up until that point, they make sense as to why Moses would ask for that promise, for that stepping into the promised land. But we'll also see his hope stopped one step short because God says no. And I think it's a great opportunity for us to wrestle with what happens when life does not turn out the way we thought it should. What I desire for us this morning is that we further understand the true applicable theology of Deuteronomy that helps us understand who God is, but also that we can apply it to our life today. And what I want to show you is that even when life ends up different than what you envisioned, God is still good. And eternally, blessing is indeed what we can look forward to. But that blessing is most likely not the blessing many Christians think it will be. So let's step into the text of chapter 3 today and begin to unpack it. We're going to begin by building the case for why Moses would feel justified in asking the prayer he asks of God. And the first thing we can see from what Rachel read to us earlier is anything is possible with God. In verses 1 through 11, it's basically telling us anything is possible with God. You can write that down. Anything is possible with God. As we discussed last week, Moses is recounting to the people of Israel the history of God's assistance in the miraculous defeat of the Amorites, of Sihon and Og, king of the Amorites. 
Now, if you're anything like me, after Rachel read through all that, I kind of went, am I thankful for that text? Thanks be to God. Uh, You know, a bunch of weird names, a bunch of geography, I don't know. Hmm, right? But there's something important contained in this, and that is we have to grasp how important it was that King Og and his people were defeated. Remember this map? Remember what was going on here was that uh, the people were moving northward. They were moving up through Israel this way, okay? They were going this way, up through Israel, and they were hitting these two places right here. The Amorites were here, and the Amorites were here. That was Sihon and Og. And so as they were going through and they were fighting them, they were um, gaining ground of the promised land that God had given them. Now, many people struggle with how a good, compassionate God could order Israel to attack and destroy these people groups in the land of Canaan. For an answer to that question, I would highly recommend you go back and listen to last week's teaching from November 11th because we looked at that in great detail. What I want to focus on today is the fact that it was a miracle for Israel to achieve this victory. And this shows the awesome power of God and that he can accomplish anything he wants. So it makes sense why Moses would ask and why we pray all the time, God, do the impossible. Do something crazy. You guys all seen the, the Incredibles? And at the, at the end, there's a little kid sitting there on his scooter in the driveway of Mr. Incredible. And Mr. Incredible says, what are you looking at? And he goes, I'm waiting for something amazing, I guess, right? That's kind of how we pray sometimes. Lord, I'm waiting for something amazing. I want to see something cool. You can do anything. Why don't you do it? Well, what's going on here is exactly that. They were doing the impossible. They were doing something amazing. First, let's realize who these Israelites were. They were not the Israeli Defense Force of 2018. There were no tanks, no fighter jets. These were the second generation of slaves that had been released from Egypt. And what were they in Egypt? Primarily day laborers and herdsmen. They were not well-equipped warriors. In fact, they had been walking in the same shoes for 40 years. There was no good equipment. And yet somehow, they defeated warriors. Second, remember how their parents viewed their odds in attacking these same people. Just turn the page back in your Bible with me and look at Deuteronomy one twenty-seven. When Moses was reminding them of what their parents said, this is one twenty-seven and 28. And you murmured in your tents and said, Because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. Where are we going up? Our brothers have made our hearts melt, saying, The people are greater and taller than we. The cities are great and fortified up to heaven. And besides, we have seen the sons of the Anakim there. Now imagine camping out in the eastern high desert of Oregon your entire life. You've never seen a tall building. And then one day... God calls you to drive into the middle of downtown Portland and you're told to conquer the U.S. bank tower and the trailblazers are guarding the front door. Your response would be the same. But these guys are giants and their city, the gates reach up to heaven. It kind of looks like that when you're standing at the base. And yet, Deuteronomy 3.5 says, as Rachel read to us, that they took all the cities, even those with high walls and gates and bars, Church, is it amazing what God can accomplish? Absolutely. If you find yourself doubting God because, man, that thing, that event, that thing that I'm struggling against seems impossible, I would remind you to read the Word intently. The entire book is about miracles. And so it makes sense that we pray and we ask God, God, do the impossible. 
Because God very well can do the impossible. Well, third, look at how these giant, uh, how giant these warriors actually were. Verse 11 of chapter 3 talks about Og, the king of Bashan, and how big his bed was. Now, you think to yourself, what an odd thing to include. You guys ever read through that and gone, what? The king of the northern portion of the Amorites, he had a bed of iron that was 12 feet long by 6 feet wide. Church, this was truly a king-sized bed. <laughs> And it wasn't just a California king, it was a Canaanite king. I'll go on the road later. Now, you might think, what an odd thing to reference. Well, uh, in my freshman year of college, I moved into the dorm, and they provided me with a bunk bed where the beds were nine feet long. Now, my roommate was five foot four. He used half of his bed for storage. And any time people would come in the room and I wasn't around, what he would tell me is that people would say, man, how big is your roommate? Right? Well, that's what they did for us tall guys on the basketball team. Big guys need big beds. So obviously this guy's big. But even more likely, many commentators believe that this wasn't actually a bed, but a different meaning of the Hebrew word. uh, And it was actually a sarcophagus or a casket. Many people believe that Og was actually dead by this point, and he may not have been leading his people, but his people were wrapped around the idea of him, right? It's kind of like how us Trailblazer fans back in the 90s thought, oh man, we can do this because they won the the championship back in the 70s, right? There's the, the idea of victory because of what you've done in the past. Either way, Og was giant, and the people that were around him were giant, And yet, Israel defeated a kingdom of warriors led by men of renown. God can do the impossible. Now, a little side note, just to clear things up. Back in chapter 2, there was all this discussion of the Rephaim, the Emim, the Zamzamim, and so on. You guys remember that? You guys have been saying those words all week, right? Zamzamim. Now, what's the deal with these guys, the sons of Anakim, the Zamzamim, all this stuff? Many connect this back with a group known as the Nephilim. Everybody say Nephilim. Okay? Now, Nephilim, many people don't even know what that means. There's a connection between this section and a number of other sections. A few of them here, for example, this is Genesis 6, 4, uh, 1 through 4. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, which means they uh, had intercourse with them and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Now, this is linked to Numbers 13. Numbers 13, 32 says, So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land... Though which, uh, through which we have gone to spy it out, is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim, and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers, and so we seemed to them. And so translators in the past have put all these together and said, oh, Nephilim are obviously giants, and these are offspring of fallen angels. The word Nephilim in uh, Hebrew is close to the word to fall in the fall. Um, and so all this has gone together. And if you go online today and type into Google Nephilim, you're going to get the craziest conspiracy theories out there. Now, you might be thinking, Hans, why are you even bringing this up? Well, because um, I think sometimes we as Christians, we get stuck on lots of conspiracy theories. Left Behind series, anyone? Right? 
what we do is we get these ideas because we read things, and rather than looking at what we absolutely know and have in front of us, we start to wander off and figure out different reasons and different things behind them as to why things occur in the Bible. And one of the reasons that people have thought that God would destroy these peoples is because they're demonic, they're offspring of demons. But guys, the Bible says none of that. We don't know that for sure. And so, as we look back at mythology and we look back at Greek mythology, we think of titans, half human, half divine, like Her- Hercules. These things are out there and there is background to support it. But the reality is, is that we need to be really good students of the Bible. And to be good students of the Bible, let me give you a little Bible study tip. Base your theology off of what is plain in Scripture, not off of what is obscure. Any of you that know me know that I love a good wild discussion about theological conspiracy. One of my professors calls those discussions pipe and beer discussions. And the reason for that is because these are topics for which you will never find an answer in Scripture, but it's fun to discuss theories over a good pipe and some beer. All right? Overall, do your best to study what is plain and keep the conspiracies for a good pipe and beer discussion with friends. And I know that many different traditions within Christianity dive more into conspiracies, dive more into conjecture than they do looking at what's right in front of us. And I want to be a church where we study what we know is right in front of us. I have never known someone who grew closer to Christ and his people because they understood aberrant theological theories better. Okay? So just a little side note there. Let's be people that study the word for what we have in front of us. So what we can know for sure about these Anakim, these Zamzamim, besides the fact that their names are crazy cool, is that, the, that they're giants and they're people that were warriors. And so it was a miraculous thing that God would defeat them. Regardless of their origins, these people were strong warriors in the line of Goliath, and therefore it was a miraculous victory. We get that? You guys good? All right. And so if you're Moses, having walked with God through the Red Sea, you've heard from him on Mount Sinai, you've watched him provide for a rebellious people for 40 years, and now watching this band of shepherds conquer fortified cities and untrained soldiers, you have to kind of believe that anything is possible with God. Amen? So let's keep reading in Deuteronomy and see what else is true about God that would empower Moses to ask for an impossible request. Look at Deuteronomy 3, 12 through 17. It says, when we took possession of this land at that time, I gave to the Reubenites and the Gadites the territory beginning in Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of the Arnon, and half the hill country of Gilead with its cities. The rest of Gilead and all Bashan, the kingdom of Og, that is, all the region of the Argove, I gave to the half-tribe of Manasseh. All that portion of Bashan is called the land of Rephaim, Jair, uh, the Manassite, I can't talk, took all the region of Argov, that is Bashan, as far as the border of the Geshurites and the Machathites, and called the villages after his own name, Havath Yair, as it is to this day. To Makir I gave Gilead, and to the Rumanites and the Gadites I gave the territory from Gilead as far as the valley of Arnon, with the middle of the valley as a border as far over as the river Jabbok, the border of the Ammonites. The Aravah also with the Jordan as the border from Kinnereth, to uh, as far as the Sea of the Aravah, the Salt Sea, under the slopes of Pisgah on the east. What we see here is something very simple. God is faithful and generous. God is faithful and generous. In your own reading time, you can go and read Numbers 32, which gives the backstory to this event. Initially, there was conflict because Moses perceived that these tribes didn't want to go to battle on the west side of the Jordan with their brothers and sisters. 
And so he was angry, and he said, why would you stay here? But as we'll see in a minute, the tribes of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, they did go over the Jordan, they did fight, they did gain victory, and then they went back and took their lands. But what they received were all these lands in which they just defeated the Amorites. And so if you look at the map up here, they took everything on the east side, everything right here, all the way down here, okay? That brown, purple, and pink, that is the the land that was given to them. That's a large amount of land. Now, to us, we read this, we go, yeah, yeah, he gave them land, that's great. But these names don't just mean nothing. Just imagine if someone came to your front door and said to you, your long-lost relative has just passed away, and I have a note for you, and in that note, it says that they left you the land between Mission Street and High Street called Bush Park. Now, to you, that would mean something, right? You'd go, man, that's a lot of land. That's pretty cool. That's very generous. Ninety and a half acres. That would mean something to you. Well, this meant something to them. God was proving true to his promise to give this land to the offspring of Abraham. Isaac and Jacob. And he was doing so in a huge way. Why wouldn't God also be generous to Moses, you might think? Well, let's keep reading, and we'll see here. Deuteronomy 3, 18. And I commanded you at that time, saying, The Lord your God has given you this land to possess. All your men of valor shall cross over, armed before your brothers, the people of Israel. Only your wives, your little ones, and your livestock... I know that you have much livestock, shall remain in the cities that I have given you until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as to you, and they also occupy the land that the Lord your God gives them beyond the Jordan. Then each of you may return to his possession which I have given you. And I commanded Joshua at that time, your eyes have seen all that the Lord your God has done to these two kings. So will the Lord do, all, uh, do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is the Lord your God who fights for you. The third thing we can see from this reading this morning is that God fights for those that follow him. God fights for those that follow him. Not only is anything possible with God, not only is God faithful and generous, but the word shows us that God fights for those that follow him. It is here that that Moses has caught up to the present time. Right? The story has caught up. He's no longer saying what happened previously. He spent from the second half of chapter 1 until this point recounting the history of the relationship between the people of God uh, and God himself. And here Moses has even passed the torch of leadership to Joseph as God commanded him. And he finishes with this amazing statement that truly sets the tone for the book of Joshua. Your eyes have seen all that Yahweh Elohim, the Lord your God, has done to those two kings. So will Yahweh do to all the kingdoms into which you are crossing. You shall not fear them, for it is Yahweh Elohim, the Lord your God, who fights for you. God was on their side. And so they had nothing to fear as long as they were walking in reliance upon him. Maybe some of you are going through trials that you are feeling like, man, I'm not going to make it. I just am absolutely not going to make it. I don't feel like I have a friend in the world. I feel isolated and alone. Maybe some of you are just fearful in life or relationships. You, you can be surrounded by everyone in this church, and yet you feel like no one has your back. Well, remember the truth of the word. We have a God who fights for us. Psalm 27.1 says this, The Lord is my light and my salvation. 
Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Psalm 118.6 says, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Now, notice, as a quick aside here, that God didn't just show up in a whirlwind or a ball of fire and destroy all these armies. He didn't show up in a nuclear blast. How did he defeat these armies? Well, he did it through God's people. Who did he use? He used his people. I think this is something we need to fight to regain in the church today. Many Christians have a mystical separation between God and his people that was never intended. People in the church say, well, I'm surrounded by God's people who love me, but I just wish I knew God loved me. People in the church might say, I need God's help, but all I have around me are all these people who want to help me. People in the church might say, I wish I could just hear from God to gain wisdom. I wish this pastor would shut up so I could hear from God. We forget that sometimes God works through his people. And so it goes here, God's working through his people, and he's showing that he is powerful, that anything is possible with him, that he is amazingly generous and faithful, and that he fights on behalf of his people. And so here we are, Moses and the Israelites perched on the east side of the Jordan, about to step foot into the promised land, about to step into what God has given them. And Moses is standing there, knowing these three truths. Anything is possible with God. God is generous and faithful, and that God fights for those that follow him. And so, church, can we really fault Moses for giving it one more solid college try to ask God to allow him to go into the promised land? For those of you that don't know the background story, Moses had been told by God, you can't go in. And so here Moses looks at the possibilities and he says, maybe I should try one more time. Maybe I should plead with God to change my circumstance, to let me fulfill my dream of walking into the promised land. And church, I don't know about you, but I can't really fault Moses. He sees that anything is possible. He sees that God is generous, and he sees that God fights for him. Well, let's see what happens. Look at verse 23. And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. You ever been in this spot where you look to the Lord and you say, please, Lord, please just fix this situation. Please just help me. Let's see what he receives. Verse 26, but the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah and lift up your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward and look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over this Jordan, but charge Joshua and encourage and strengthen him, for he shall go over at the head of this people, and he shall put them in possession of the land that you shall see. So we remained in the valley opposite Beth Peor. Now, I many times have read over this and easily moved past it. It's just, you know, it's a no. But to put yourselves in his shoes changes the story. Think about it. How many times in your life have you pleaded with God, and yet, even though anything is possible, even though he's amazingly generous and faithful, even though you know he fights for you, it doesn't turn out as you think it should. It doesn't turn out in the dream that you've always held. 
I think what we can learn from this today and what I think Moses learned is that we can quickly understand that relationship with God is not a means to achieve our goals. It is the goal. Relationship with God is not a means to achieve our goals, our destinations, our dreams. It is the dream. It is the goal. It is the destination. Perhaps Moses thought, much like I did in that moment of weakness, crying out to God after our miscarriage, I've been serving God. I'm God's servant. He even calls himself that. He, unlike me, is called that by Scripture. So maybe, maybe I can just ask him. Maybe, you know, he's taken my advice before. Maybe I'll throw it out to him. And yet, the Word says that God became angry with him. Why? Is God an angry God? Is he a bad God? Can he not accomplish anything? Why wouldn't God just let him in, I think we in our humanness might ask. What I want to suggest to you this morning is that perhaps God was trying to make this point. He was trying to help Moses understand that he'd already arrived. He'd already been given everything. There is no one other than Jesus Christ who comes closer, because Jesus is God, who comes closer to God than Moses. Moses was a friend of God. He talked with him. He hung out with him. He heard from him. I see this in myself and so many others so often. I think, maybe even subconsciously, if I can just be closer to God, maybe a little bit more obedient, then he will make my life the way I want it. He will let me into my promised land. And since my life is not the way I want it, that must mean that God is mad at me, so i got to try harder. Anybody ever felt that way? Yeah? We use relationship with God, obedience to God, as a means to achieve our ends and not let it be the end in and of itself. Let's go to the event in which God denied Moses entry into, number, uh, into the promised land in Numbers 20. Why don't you turn there with me? Go back to Numbers 20, verse 2. And let's read through verse 13 there. This is where the congregation of Israel is out in the middle of the wilderness and they're crying out against God. Verse 2, Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron. See, they didn't have donuts back then, so water was the big thing. And the people quarreled with Moses and said, "Would uh, Would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. In other words, I'd rather die. Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It is no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there is no water to drink. See, they made the mistake that they thought that God was done with them rather than he was going to continue moving them. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock. So, so far, so good. He took the staff. He gathered the people. He was obedient. 
But then he said to them, Hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you out of this rock? Ooh, we? Interesting. And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah, where the people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. So what was the big deal here? So he hit a rock with a stick. He doesn't get to fulfill his dream. He doesn't get to go into the promised land. Well, guys, this was the second time this occurrence happened. You can go and read in Exodus 17, a very similar event occurred. And God said, take your rod, assemble the people, strike the rock. And Moses did all those things. He was completely obedient and water came out. But this second event, God gives slightly different instructions. He says, take your staff, assemble the people, and speak to the rock. He does the first two things obediently, but then seems to usurp the position of judge and authority, the position of God, and says, you guys are rebels. Should we, me and God, draw water out for you? And then he strikes the rock in anger, not once, but twice. And so God says, hey, Mo, come here, buddy. Whoa. Whoa, Mo. You misrepresented me. Your consequence is that you won't get to go into the promised land. In other words, you showed yourself as rebellious as the people themselves, and so you're going to die in the wilderness just as they will. Moses, you see, was supposed to be a mediator that represented God to man and man to God. But in this case, he blew it, and he wasn't obedient. Obedience in relationship to God ceased to be his greatest end, even for a heartbeat, and the consequence was massive. But what this does is it shouldn't leave us in this place of fear and horror and condemnation that if we disobey, then we won't get to fulfill our dreams. What it should do is point us to the one that was obedient in all things, the perfect mediator. Reading this story points me to the mediator that was greater than Moses, that even though he wanted a different result, he finished his prayer with, but Father, not my will be done, but your will be done. How different would Moses' prayer have been if he had added that slight piece? You see, Jesus Christ was the perfect and the obedient mediator that even Moses himself needed. You see, Moses was supposed to be the people's mediator to God, but he ultimately became their accuser. While Jesus was falsely accused so that he could become and fulfill the role of mediator. Moses was given the job of bringing life-giving water, and what he brought instead was condemnation. Jesus was condemned to death so that through his resurrection and his pouring out of the Spirit, he could bring forth life-giving water in each of us. Moses was a man who, in that moment, usurped the position of God and lost the role of mediator. Jesus gave up the position of God so he could become a man and fulfill the role of mediator. Moses struck the rock in his own sin. On the cross of Calvary, Jesus was struck for our sin so he could become our rock of salvation. In that moment in Deuteronomy 3, Moses saw his relationship to Yahweh as a means to something else. Can't you just sneak me in, God? What Jesus showed with his very life is that there is no greater end than relationship with the Father. 
Look at Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, 20. I'll put it up on the board here. This is John 17, 20. He says in that prayer, I don't know, if I was in his position as high priest, I would have said, hey, can we do some cool stuff? Can we hurry up and get this kingdom thing going? Can we kind of forgo the cross and just put me, install me in the, the throne? Is that, is that okay with you, Father? Right? That's what I would have prayed for. But look at what Jesus prays for. He says, I do not ask for these, his disciples only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Guys, think about what Jesus prayed for here. It's one thing. Relational unity. That God will be with his people and his people would be with God and we'd be with one another. In many people's mind, the reason that they are in relationship with the Father is so they can get to heaven. Many Christians, we make the same mistake. If I'm in relationship with you, maybe that means I won't have to go to the bad place. I can get into the promised land when I die. But dear brothers and sisters, relationship with God is not a means to the ultimate destination of heaven. It is the ultimate destination. The way the Bible talks about heaven is not as some other place. It is the abode of God, the place where God dwells. And so to say, I want to be in heaven is to say, I want to be with the Lord. To cry out for heaven is to cry out for the ultimate end of relationship with God, the ultimate end of being united with him. Relationship with God is not a means to comfort. It is comfort. Relationship with God is not a means to security. It is security. Relationship with God is not a means to friendship or to be part of a club. I find that often in the church, that people are part of a church not because they want to serve Jesus, but because they're finally accepted by people. And the second that goes away, then their faith goes away. Relationship with God is not a means to friendships. It is the ultimate friendship. Relationship with God is not a means to attaining an identity. It is the identity. Relationship with God is not a means to joy or happiness. It is joy. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father because he recognized that there was no greater joy than that. There was no ultimate destination or goal that could usurp being one with the Father. Look at his words here in uh, John 4.34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. In John 6.38 he said, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If we get this, then all things that used to be chores become blessings. Reading your Bible is no longer a means to show God your obedience so he can bless the rest of your life. Reading your Bible is the destination in and of itself because it's life-giving word, life-giving water. 
Praying no longer becomes a way to ask for what you want. It is what you want. It's spending time with a father who loves you and cares for you and wants to hear from you. And when you put the two together, you hear from God and you speak to God and you hear from God and you speak to God. And this in and of itself is a destination. Serving the Lord no longer becomes a chore where we have to log our hours and figure out, oh, how much volunteering have I done? Is it enough to make Jesus happy with me? Instead, serving Jesus is the greatest destination. Guys, if I based my service of Jesus in setting up and tearing down church on whether or not other people showed up to help, I would have quit about two weeks in 15 years ago. By the way, we need help for set up and tear down. (laughs) If we do it based off of other people, serving's never going to be fun. But it was so cool this morning, Michael, I'm going to single you out here. I heard him talking to one of his sons, and uh, his son was running around uh, playing, and, and Michael said, hey, buddy, come help unload the trailer. We're here to serve Jesus. And I thought, oh, that's so great. Yeah, Hans, stop playing around. We're here to serve Jesus. Even service no longer is a chore. It now becomes a blessing. If these things are done because they're innately serving and walking in relationship with Christ, they sustain us. They don't drain us. And arrival is not the goal. We realize that the goal is the journey with Christ. And when we get this, everything else fades away. Look with me really quick to Luke chapter 9. We're going to fast forward the story here a bit. I'm almost finished, but let's look at Luke 9 first. Luke 9, 28. I just find this a little bit funny. Luke 9, 28. Jesus is up on the mount that would later become known as the Mount of Transfiguration. It says, Now about eight days... After these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. Now stop for a second, okay? Just imagine this with me. Moses did not get into the promised land. Anybody want to tell me where the Mount of Transfiguration is? It's in the promised land. Okay, why didn't the scribes put a little parenthesis of, of in here? Yeah, and Moses had a party hat on and he was blowing a thing and like, oh, I made it, right? Like, why wasn't he going crazy? He's in the promised land. Well, no, Moses showed up for something else. If we read it, we understand what his focus is at this point. Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke to Jesus of his departure, meaning his, his death. In the Greek, it's the word his exodus. Interesting. His death, his resurrection, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and those who were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, okay, it's kind of like you guys right now, you're just becoming fully awake, okay? When they became fully awake, they saw his glory in the two men who stood with him. And as the men were parting from him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. Okay? Imagine being a young Jewish boy waking up and seeing, I don't even know, I'm like out of it. Like back in the day for me, it was the day I walked through the, the airport and I saw Clyde Drexler and Terry Porter. I was like, ah, I've died and gone to heaven, right? For those of you that don't know, they played for the Blazers back in the day. They were like their stars, right? 
for Peter, he should have been like, Moses, oh my gosh. And that's what he was doing. He was freaking out. He was like, man, these guys, these are my heroes. Let's build tents for them and all hang out together, not knowing what he said. As he was saying these things, the cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one or beloved. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. And they kept silent and told no one in those days anything of what they had seen. Often, I think in life, even in the midst of things that are innately good, being parents, being spouses, being friends, trying to strive for greater things, I think in the midst of those things, we see Jesus as a means to an end rather than the end in and of itself. We say Jesus will make us a better husband, a better wife, a better mother, a better father, or a better person. So that's good. That's why I strive after Jesus. Maybe Jesus is the means to get you pure or clean or help you fight an addiction. Maybe Jesus is the means to make you more likable. But guys, even that is not the ultimate end of our lives. Relationship with the Son of God is your ultimate purpose. If you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus Christ, I want to invite you today to do that. See, the reason many people don't actually walk into a relationship with Jesus Christ is because they, they think that they need to be sold on what Jesus can gain them. That's why a lot of pastors spend their time on Sunday morning trying to sell you Jesus. But Jesus doesn't need to be sold. He is the perfect gift. He is the perfect one. And the very means of, uh, or the, the very relationship you gain by being in Jesus is a reward in and of itself. By walking with Jesus, by knowing Jesus, by being able to pursue him. Church, for our application today, I want to ask you one simple thing. I want to ask you to search your heart and consider whether Jesus has been a means to an end for you. If so, I want you to ask, what ultimate end or destination or goal is that? Because often I find that many of us don't even know, but we're just discontent with Jesus. We want something else. Search your heart and consider whether Jesus has been a means to an end for you. If you can think of that readily, for me, it's pretty much there pretty quick. I can understand what I've been pursuing instead of Jesus. Then as we go to the tables of communion while we're doing worship, I want us to lay that down, to confess it to the Lord, to repent from it, and to start asking ourselves, is Jesus my ultimate end? Is he my ultimate destination? Am I looking for a different promised land or am I content in the fact that I am a friend of God? And this week, as we think through being in the midst of thanksgiving, I've been around a couple of different tables where, again, very well-intentioned, let's talk about what we're thankful for. And what's always so interesting to me is that we talk about family, talk about friends, we talk about jobs, we talk about a roof over our heads. Just listen. If you're at a different family's table, listen, and in order, they will tell you their idols. And listen for when they say, I'm thankful that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, has brought me into relationship with him. I want us to be a people that this Thursday, when we step into Thanksgiving, that's the first thing that comes out of our mouth. What are you thankful for? 
I'm thankful that I am in relationship with a God who loves me, who died for me, and who has saved me. And I'm not looking forward to heaven because I have the ultimate end of my life right now in relationship with Jesus. For this next section of Deuteronomy to make sense, we must understand that relationship with God and obedience to God is the end in and of itself that is worth pursuing with our every being. And so I want us to wrestle with this one simple truth this morning. Is Jesus a means to an end for you, or is he the ultimate goal? I want us to think through in what ways have I been using relationship with him as a means to attain the goals of my life. And I want us to think, that, think about rather than always looking for a destination to arrive at, perhaps it's time we looked at the fact that in the ups and downs of the journey, that is when we are learning the most about growing closer to Christ. And that is worth everything. You know, it's kind of funny in my marriage over the years and even in my parenting we're going to be going to Disneyland in a couple of months with the kids. And, you know, the way my mind is structured, it's, I got to hurry up and get to Disneyland. We got to hurry up and get on the ride. And then we got to hurry up and get the fast pass. And we got to hurry up and go to the next ride. And we got to hurry up and do that. And then all of a sudden you get on the plane going back and you're like, what just happened? Right? It's kind of the same thing with my wife. It's like, well, let's hurry up and go on vacation and have that romantic time and do this and do that, right? And what I realize as I'm getting older, and maybe this is a little tiny bit of wisdom finally trickling into my hard-headed brain, but I'm starting to realize that the important, most important parts of life are actually the small parts that go between those big events. The times where I become most intimate with my wife are not on vacation that's romantic, but it's in the ups and downs of life where we have to work through conflict. And yet I want to cry out and say, God, why is there conflict? I thought I served you. Why aren't you helping me avoid conflict? The times with my kids that are the most important are those times on the plane where I get to mess around with my kids and play with them. And the times in the hotel room between going on the rides where I get to know them and figure out their personalities and let them know that I love them intently. And I think if we adjust our minds, as I'm talking about today, to, to grasp this idea that Jesus isn't a means to an end, he is the end, relationship with him, then I think all of life will start to adjust that way and we'll realize that we're all in such a hurry to attain a destination of the promised land, but what really are we searching for? And we'll start to be content with the day-to-day. We'll start to be content with the now and the fact that we are loved by God and we're loved by his people. And I think we'll become a very effective church if we can do that. Amen? Amen. Amen.